The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Get our minds going around this topic a little bit. When everything in your life is in question or uncertain or unknown, where do you go to find relief? When everything in your life is in question or uncertain or unknown, where do you go to find relief? I want you to be thinking about that question. About 20 years ago, can't believe it's 20 years, I'm so old. About 20 years ago, a friend of mine and I went down to Arizona to hike the Grand Canyon. And uh, we did it. And one of the things that people told us as you're heading to the Grand Canyon that you definitely want to see is what's called Havasu Falls. I have a picture of Havasu Falls. I'm going to take a peek. Havasu Falls is, about, is a little side trip in the Grand Canyon, beautiful waters, turquoise waters. Everyone said, you've got to see Havasu Falls. Somebody's shaking their head no. I'm like, don't go see Havasu Falls. I don't know. So anyway, so we were like, yes, let's make that a side trip. After we hike the canyon, we'll go see Havasu Falls. So then we went on, I don't know if at 20 years ago we went on a website or where we went, but basically we found directions to Havasu Falls. And these were the directions that I think we received. So the next slide has, has the directions. And it was this. The best way to reach Havasupai, which is the, the town, is from Highway 66, six miles each of Peace Springs on Indian Road 18, Route 18, a 64-mile road. Okay, do you notice that it says a 64-mile road? That's kind of a long road, right? Well, you know, we were ambitious. We're like, let's do it. Let's go see these falls. And so here we go, venturing on our journey to Havasu Falls. We're heading on uh, Indian Route 18, and... Uh, we're going along, and the route just starts to become a little less familiar because the, the, the pavement that we're driving on suddenly becomes more like a dirt road. And we're like, okay, that's fine. i uh, feeling a little bit of anxiety, but I'm finding myself, you know, just kind of settled in the fact that we're in our 4 by 4 truck. We're okay. It's a big truck. We should be fine. Uh, and then we're driving along, and the road gets even, even rougher and almost just like more sandier. Like it's not even recognizable as a road. And there's a point where we go over this hill and come down. And I'm not kidding you. We come down the hill and stop dead in our tracks to this big red Texas Longhorn just looking at us. And I was like, oh, 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 we're lost. <laughs> like we're not even we're not even on a road anymore. And we had probably ventured in about 40 miles in the desert. And I'm really starting to feel that anxiety. It's still all internal. I'm not communicating to my friend how I'm feeling, but we're both feeling it and we're not saying it. Where are we? So I'm not finding much relief in the truck anymore. I'm not finding much relief in the road anymore. So I said, guys, we need to just turn around and, and get out of here. We've got 40 miles to head back. We got to get back. I don't even know if we're going to know how to get back. And so then I'm finding relief as I'm watching the gas gauge saying, oh, we're above a half a tank, should be fine. We're continuing back, and we're on our journey. If you know gas gauges, half a tank goes a lot faster when it's at the bottom end, right? So I'm watching the, the needle just continue to go down and down, and we're below a quarter of a tank. And I know in my mind where we are, I know we have at least probably 40 miles yet to get out of this desert. 
then I'm like, okay, you know what? If we get stranded, at least I have my old school Nokia technology to, oh no. I've got no, I've got no signal. I've got no signal. We're in the desert. I've got no signal. I got nothing. Everything that brought me relief in that situation was slowly just disappearing. And in a desperate prayer, I did. I cried out to the Lord. I said, Lord, at this point, I really do believe this. At this point, only you can deliver us out of here, out of this desert. Today in our passage, we're going to see the people of Israel in somewhat of a similar predicament. As Pastor Dan shared last week, they attempted to use the ark of God as a temporary relief measure, like a rabbit's foot or a good luck charm. Hey, God can get us out of this battle. We've got his ark. Let's use it. And it fails miserably. Well, now they have the ark back in the land. And they're probably pretty confident and pretty excited. We got the ark back. We're in great shape. But they're realizing nothing's changing. The bullies that are surrounding them, the Philistines, are still closing in, taunting, tormenting, coming after them, threatening them, and nothing's changing. Their temporary relief structure, having the ark set up in their land, is not changing anything. And so when we read the passage, we're going to see God work in providing lasting and changing relief for his people if they would only cry out to him. Let's read together 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. And, and I think you can add the word then, and then all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. And direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people at Israel, of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. 
But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come knowing and confessing that we bring our own temporary relief structures to the table. That we come bringing our own false gods that have promised to give us relief. And maybe some of us have struggled for 5, 10, 15, 20 years with these gods. And they're not working Lord, we pray as we come to your word that we would see that lasting and permanent relief is only found in you. Help us this morning to know what it looks like to cry out to you to be our help and to be our relief. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there's two questions I want to ask us today. The first question is, what does crying out to God sound like? And then the second question I want to ask is, what's the result of crying out to God? What happens when we cry out to God? So the first question, what does crying out to God sound like? Well, the first thing that we hear in this passage and see in this passage is corporate confession. Verse 2 says that all the house of Israel lamented. The entire house, the whole people lamented. They're sad. That's what it means. They're sad. God has awakened in them a grief over their sin. This is the first sign of revival in a community, is when there is an awareness of the problem. And God used those 20 years as an instrument to illustrate the problem. 20 years trying their temporary fixes and nothing's happening. The Philistines are still coming after them. 20 years God used to say, I'm going to leave you to your own devices and you're going to see it's going to do you no good. And verse 6 shows us what the problem was with Israel what they're lamenting over. They say to Samuel, we have sinned against the Lord. The relationship between God's people and God is busted. It's broken. 
And notice, again, the collective here, we have sinned against the Lord. God is highlighting that it's this relationship with his people that's the problem, the people of Israel. If you heard it in the passages, I read it, but it kept repeating, the people of Israel, the people of Israel. And the reason the author does that is he wants you to know this is covenantal language. This isn't just me and God. This is the people and God. And in verse 8, they say to Samuel, cry out to the Lord for us. Why is corporate confession so important? Well, it's, it's what we practice every Sunday when we confess our sins. It is a collective sigh of our need for him. And there are no exceptions in this room. If I had a show of hands, how many in this room are not sinners? Raise your hand. I see no one raising their hand. <laughs> There's no exceptions. And as a body of believers, as a body, like an organic structure, when one of us sins, all of us feel it. And what honestly drew me to Jacob's Wall when uh, several years ago looking for where God might be calling us was a conversation with Pastor Dan when he said, you know what? I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the lead repenter in this church. And I said, sign me up. And if you start to believe that Pastor Dan or Pastor Chad or any of the elders are without sin, you are horribly mistaken. We are not exceptions. And if you hear anyone ever attempt to separate us or the leadership as being more righteous, then please, please rebuke them. Corporate confession is an opportunity for us to declare as a body, we have sinned against the Lord. What can happen when we avoid corporate confession? Well, you might think about it in this way. When someone sins against you, how do you respond? If you find yourself seeing someone sin against you and then distancing yourself from them and saying, I'm not like that, then maybe corporate confession's not happening. When you see someone around you that is in sin, you should have a sense and an awareness of your own sin. I remember several years ago, I was starting to lose sight of my depravity. I was starting to lose sight of my need for the gospel. And I said to the Lord in this random prayer, not random in God's eyes, I said, Lord, show me the reality of my sin because I'm not seeing it. And I'm not kidding you. The next day, I sat in my friend's apartment as they laid on the ground crying over a sin that had just been exposed, weeping and saying, I am such a sinner. What have I done? And I sat with them and I said, we are in this together. God showed me the reality of my sin by showing me my friend's brokenness. That's what corporate confession can do. If you find yourself using you language instead of we language, that might be another indicator that you need some more corporate confession. In your job, 
Whose performance are you focused on? His, hers, or ours? In your marriage, who are you focused on? Him, her, or us? I remember Apollo 13, the phrase that became so popular. Houston, we have a problem. Let that be our mentality in the church. Jacob's well, we have a problem. But admitting we have a problem is like the adage said, it's only the first step. We need to turn from the problem toward a solution. And that's the hard part about Israel's lament in verse 2, because it had some flaws to it. And Samuel speaks to them by calling for the second part of this cry for relief. He calls for radical repentance. We see this in verses 3 to 6. Samuel tests their lament. He tests the sincerity of their apology. Because he's seen them use God. And he knows about Israel's history of turning to temporary relief from other false gods. He knows Israel's history. And Samuel throws at them this if-then statement. If you are truly sorry, then what are you going to do with all of these other gods? They're lamenting. They're sorry. But they're kind of like an adulterer who's had an affair, goes up to his wife and says, honey, I'm so sorry I did this. And then after they have this conversation, picks up the phone and calls his lover and said, you know what, I need some support. I need some help. That's what Israel is doing here. And Samuel's asking them to tear down these other lovers, these other sources of temporary relief. But he's not asking them to tear down these idols to prove that they love God. No, he's asking them to tear down these idols so that God might prove his love to them. Keeping these foreign gods close at hand was basically serving them like an insurance policy. If God doesn't come through for us, what about our crops and our food supply? You know what? We got the bales. They're going to help us because they're in charge of like rain and water. So they're kind of a nice insurance backup plan if God doesn't come through. Okay, if God doesn't come through with our future, like, you know, what if we can't keep, we have this infertility problem and we can't keep having more kids and God's not blessing us with more kids. What if God doesn't come through? You know what? We've got the Ashtaroth, the goddess of fertility to help us out just in case. And Samuel tests the people's faith by asking them to tear up these insurance policies and to direct their heart, which is Valentine's Day, the heart, which is the organ that represents loyalty and commitment, to direct their heart to the Lord. Give him the loyalty he deserves. And he also says to serve him only. God gets exclusive rights. Because if God's going to act, if God's going to act on behalf of his people and do amazing things, he's not going to give these idols any credit. Because God is incredibly generous and he shares so many things, but the one thing that God does not share at all is his glory. Isaiah 42, 8 says, 
I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor share my praise with carved idols. God works not only corporate confession in the hearts of these people, but also this radical repentance. And we see it playing out in verse four. We see the people tearing up these insurance policies by taking out these false gods. And they place their trust in the one true God. God will have to be the one to provide us with food. God will have to be the one to provide us with a future. And in verse six, we see more evidence of God working this radical repentance in his people as they trust in his faithfulness and care. What do we see them doing in verse 6? We see them fasting and pouring out water. We might not be sure, what, what does that mean? I've never seen that practice of pouring out water. But if you think about it, what was scarce in a desert climate like it was at, on the way to Havasu Falls? What's probably really scarce? Water and food. So if you're pouring out water onto the ground, what do you must be demonstrating there? Trust. We got nothing. We bring nothing. It's kind of like if God were to go to the state of California or the state of Arizona who are experiencing an incredible water shortage and say to them, hey guys, everybody, turn on your faucets for the whole day. Go for it. You're going to have to trust that water is going to come from somewhere. And they're saying in fasting and pouring out water, we have nowhere else to go but to you, O Lord. Thinking about us in our day and age, what is our just-in-case insurance policy? What's your insurance policy that says, you know what, I'll be okay even if God doesn't come through because I've got this? What might even be bringing you more relief than your relationship to God? What faucet might he be asking you to turn on and empty in order that he might show his love for you and his faithfulness? I love the season of Lent. It's just begun. My Catholic roots are showing I love the season of Lent because it's 40 days of deliberately emptying a specific faucet. And usually what I give up for Lent is something I really enjoy, like music or podcasts or Netflix. It doesn't earn me anything with God, but it actually serves me by inviting more of God into those now vacant places. Is he asking us to consider a fast from something that might be providing us temporary relief so that he might be glorified and seen in it? But pleading to God with his corporate confession and this repentance, it's not it. It's not the end. It requires a representative. And Samuel was the one representative for all. I just want to explain a little bit because it can be a little confusing when we read the Old Testament and some of this language. But you might have heard when you heard this language, why does it look like the people can't go to God themselves? They keep asking Samuel to intervene. Why don't they just pray to him themselves? 
it's completely intentional why the author puts that in there. Because throughout Scripture, there is always, always, always a covenant representative on behalf of the people. Look at verse 5. Samuel says to them, I will pray to the Lord for you. Samuel is acting on behalf of the people as a priest and as a judge. He is God's appointed representative. Like our government system, we have representatives who are from this area who represent us in Washington. But in biblical times, covenants were, were more than that, more than what we see in our government structure. Covenants were really about protection. A weaker party would enter into a covenant with a stronger party and a more powerful party so that they were guaranteed protection. And the weaker party would select a man from among them to be their representative, to be their substitute in signing a deal. And that deal was usually signed with some evidence of blood. This person would be the substitute for the group. And he had to be one of them. He had to be intimately familiar with the people to represent them. And only this person would be authorized to enter the king or the ruler's palace and ask for protection. Only this one authorized person. No common folks were allowed to enter into such a protected and holy place. And Samuel is the representative between a weak people and a mighty God. And you see Israel's begging for this protection from Samuel in verses 8 to 10. They cry out, only God can save us. And they say to Samuel, literally, don't be deaf to our cry. Call out to God. We need protection. And this is the first time in 1 Samuel that we actually hear God's people refer to the Lord as our God. A shift of loyalties has happened and Samuel takes a lamb at the earliest stages that it can be sacrificed, which communicates just how urgent the matter is. And he sheds the lamb's blood to plead God's protection and help. And he offers a whole burnt offering to this stronger party to say, we have offended you. We have sinned completely against you. And in that act, the covenant document between God and his people is once again reestablished. It's hard, to, it's hard for us to think about covenants in our day and age. It's not a word we use often. I mean, I went to covenant seminary. There's a covenant college, but it's hard for us to grasp covenants because we really do believe we're like we're our own bosses. We're the own masters of our destinies. We're not a weaker party. We are the strong party. We live in the United States, a superpower. We don't understand what it means to be a weaker party. Someone recently reminded me of the seriousness of covenants with counseling. At the beginning of counseling, I hand people what's called an informed consent. And I walk through, hey, here's what we're going to do in counseling. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's what the relationship's going to look like between you and me. This is the informed consent. Would you sign it? And this person said, oh, wait a minute. I didn't realize seriousness of what we were getting into until you handed me that document. 
because it said in some ways, I'm, I'm entrusting a little bit of myself to you as an authority. It's a lot easier for me, they said, to like check the I accept the terms and conditions to Apple's iOS updates. It's easy to just check that. Sure, we don't even read the terms and conditions. Yeah, sure, I accept that. But to entrust ourselves into a greater party's care and protection. It's a pretty powerful thing to do. And Israel is finally pleading with Samuel, please sign this document. Get us protection. We, as sinners, need protection. Because there's a holy God. And as you bring, as you think about your debt of sin, and you think about being in the presence of God, who's going to represent you before God? You can either represent yourself, which will lead to death, or you can put your faith in someone who knows both parties intimately. Samuel, whose name means heard of God, was their representative. Jesus, whose name means the Lord saves, is our representative. John 14, 6 says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Like Israel, we need to remember when we pray, we can't pray to God on our own. Entering into his presence solo is deadly. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. Let him be your representative before God. Tim Keller tells a story about this, about praying in Jesus' name and how it came to life for him. He actually was in a, a seminar with a, a well-known professor, and he wanted to talk to the professor after the lecture, and he saw just a line of students just coming up to him, wanting to, wanting to shake this guy's hand and talk to him, and Keller's like, oh, man, I'm not sure. He's getting in line with this guy, and you could see the professor was just sort of tired and kind of annoyed with all these people coming and doing the, the pleasantries and the, the politeness. Yes, hello, thank you for your praise, and da-da-da-da-da, thank you, thank you. And Keller went up to him and mentioned that they had shared a mutual friend, that they both had a mutual friend. And as soon as Keller mentioned the guy's name, this professor immediately snapped to attention and spoke to him with warmth and interest. And he says, I got this kind of access to him, not in my own name, but in the name of our mutual friend. This is a very dim hint, he says, of how we have access to God the Father. Because we know his son Jesus. Because we are in Christ. God focuses his almighty love and attention on us when we pray in Jesus' name. And so here we are seeing Israel pray and ask Samuel to pray and be their representative. And they ask the second question, what does relief then actually look like? The first thing we see in this passage as the covenant is reestablished is safety from harm. Picture it if you can. Israel's tearing up these insurance policies, tearing down these idols. As, as they're hearing the sound of their tearing down idols, they're hearing a different sound. The Philistines start marching, start coming to them. 
And Israel must have looked like an easy target. I mean, they're up on this hill. They're hungry because they're fasting. They've poured out their water. They got no resources. And if you can imagine the Philistines as the biggest bully of a nation coming at them. Look at Israel's reaction. Verse 7, they said they were filled with fear and dread. But the covenant papers have been established with this lamb's blood. And we need to experience God's protection. And verse 10 and 11 gives us one of the best climactic scenes of an epic movie. The bully army marching up the hill with a snarl and like a smile on their face. We have got you now, you big crybabies. And can you hear the voice of a powerful father thundering to his children's bully? Don't you dare touch them. They're mine. The enemy is stopped in their tracks. Not just stopped, but knocked into a state of complete confusion. And God says, people, go get them. And the people of God experience a victory that the Lord had provided with his hands. They taste safety from harm from these bullies. Finally, it comes. Not only do they experience safety from harm, they experience security and peace. Verses 12 to 17 is kind of the happy ever after for the rest of the chapter. Samuel raises up what's called an Ebenezer, which means literally a stone of help, a marker to remember what has happened in this place, to remember how the Lord came through in the time of great distress, to remember the forgiveness that Israel received, to remember the thunder, to remember the victory against the enemy. And Samuel would continue to be their representative before God, making sure that the people of Israel keep their covenant agreement with the Lord. And at the end, Samuel builds an altar to the Lord. What's happening there is he's building a new place of worship in his own hometown of Ramah where he came from because the old corrupt temple of Shiloh was destroyed. And we all breathe a collective sigh of relief <sighs> until we read chapter 8. You see, security and peace did not last because our sinful hearts are prone to wander. Samuel's stone monument, Ebenezer, would eventually be toppled. Relief would only be temporary because sin had not yet been overcome once and for all. You see, God was not finished with the story. 1 Samuel is only a foreshadowing of the ultimate safety and security and peace which was going to come. Where then do we find our relief? I don't mean to be corny, but you'll find your Ebenezer if you take these five points and make them into an acronym. Where do you find relief? at the C-R-O-S-S, at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
The cross is our corporate confession that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the punishment that we all deserve. The cross asks for radical repentance, to tear up any other insurance papers, any other false gods, and open up the faucet and bring nothing to the table and say, you alone, God, are the one who can save me. And on the cross hangs one perfect covenant representative between God and man who became our substitute, who became our offering for our sin. Put your trust in him. And the cross then provides safety from harm. Friends, because the wages of sin is death, but Christ's death becomes our protection. God's thundering voice says, sin and death, don't you dare touch them. They're mine. Their sin is paid for. We're safe. And the cross gives us security and peace with God forever. There is a happy ever after. As our new place of worship, a new temple is established in each one of us, not with the ark, but in each one of us as God's spirit now lives in us. What is your temporary source of relief? Is it our bank account? Is it our bottle of cheap wine? Is it our job security? Is it our secret lover? Is it our home equity? Is it our incognito websites? Is it our spouse? Is it our polished theology? Is it our stash of weed? Is it our getting through all of our emails? Is it our kids' success? Is it our Facebook posts? Is it having our ducks in a row? Those are all temporary. Find relief in this Ebenezer, this place of help, the cross of Christ. We're going to close with the hymn today, Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing. And it was written by a man named Robert Robinson. And Robert Robinson is a man that's very familiar with temporary relief. He was probably an alcoholic. In his early years, he drank a lot and then was converted. And in his later years, he found himself once again backslidden and going back to his temporary gods. So he wrote, Come Thou Fountain, in his 20s. And here he is now, maybe in his 40s or 50s. And in his backslidden condition, the author was traveling in a stagecoach one day. And his only companion was a young woman who didn't know. And in the providence of God, and she didn't realize who she was talking with, the woman starts quoting or singing, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. And she was saying to him, what an encouragement this song had been to her. And he's trying his hardest just to change the subject. Stop talking about that song. I know that song. And finally he said, with tears in his eyes, ma'am, 
I am the poor, unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand lifetimes if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had back then. And the woman, being led by God's Spirit, said to him, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. Let us all venture to the streams of mercy flowing at the cross of Christ and find there our permanent and lasting relief. Let's pray. Father, you are a good father and you are a powerful father. And there is nothing that matches you. Your thundering voice speaks protection to your people. We are safe because we have a relationship with your son, Jesus. Be our protection today. Remind us to plead to our representative Jesus. That even where we are, maybe even finding temporary relief in patterns of sin, Father, remind us that you invite us to come back to the cross, to come back home, and to reestablish our relationship with you. Lead us back, Father, as a people, as a corporate people, as a body of Christ. Lead us back to the cross. It's there we find lasting relief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.